Welcome back. This is The Family, sitting in for Tom Bernard. I'm Dave Schrader, along with... Hackmaster Ralph W. Basham, MD. Andy Brown Bernard. And Cassie Schrader. We've got a couple of great guests lined up for this hour, so make sure you stay tuned with us right here on The Family. Michael Bryant, Brad Sean Bryant, what's the latest? Well, basically, we're trying to represent people who have been hurt and talk to them before they talk to an adjuster. Uh, one of the key points is to make sure you know what your rights are before you start talking to the insurance company and they start asking you questions or they try to settle your case early and cheap. Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, a lot of people have fear of attorneys. It makes them very uncomfortable. They get nervous about it. What should I do? I've known Michael for years and years now, and I would highly recommend you. So that should be good enough for everybody because I don't endorse people who are dirtbags. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, but I guess the key is, is people think I'll charge them if I talk to them. Right. So a lot of people call me up. It's like, how much is this going to cost if you call me back? Like, you want me to call you back? How much will that cost? I don't charge people. The only way I get paid is if we recover, um, if we get money from the, the other side. And there's a lot of people I talk to that I never get paid for that are just part of giving them advice to make sure they know what they can do and what their rights are. And your record's terrific as well, we should point out. Well, it works. It's been good. <laughs> it's been good, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> it's been good. And how do they contact you? And, uh, e- either through our website, which is minnesotapersonalinjury.com, minnesotapersonalinjury.com, or at 800-770-7008. Michael Bryant, Bradshaw, and Bryant. Walzer Automotive introduces the new kids on the block, not the band. It's their three newest dealerships. Experience the Walzer way at Wyzetta Nissan on 394 or Walzer Polar Chev and Walzer Polar Mazda on Highway 61 in White Bear Lake. I've had all three general managers on the podcast, and I can honestly say that Mike, John, and Brett are some of the finest car people in the seven-county Mosquito Control District. This month, in addition to great deals, they're searching for used cars and will pay Kelly Blue Book excellent whether you trade or sell outright. Some reconditioning can apply, so please, no flood cars from Apple Valley. So, if you're shopping for a new or used Chevy, Mazda, or Nissan, check out the new kids on the block. Don't tell them Tom sent you. Just show up and be amazed. That stuff never works anyway. Welcome back to the program. This is The Family. Tom Bernard will be back with you tomorrow, along with Catherine and Alex and probably the rest of the family. The whole crew. Uh, I'm Dave Schrader. I'm the host of Midnight in the Desert, the best in anomalous talk radio. You can hear me five nights a week at midnightinthedesert.com. On the weekends, Beyond the Darkness, best in paranormal talk radio, and every Tuesday, True Crime Tuesday. Uh, Tom, kind enough to let me step in and fill in for these couple of days, having a good time. Joining us... In this next segment, William Ammerman is the executive vice president of digital media at Six Sales Group. As global head of advertising for Frankly Incorporated, he managed digital advertising for hundreds of television stations, including their websites, mobile apps, and connected television platforms. Prior to that, Ammerman was Tribune Media's vice president of programmatic and data-driven revenue and held senior advertising positions with Hearst Television and Capital Broadcasting. He's here talking about his new book, The Invisible Brand, Marketing in the Age of Automation, Big Data, and Machine Learning. Welcome to the show, William. It's nice to be here. Thanks. Great to have you. Uh, This is pretty amazing. We were just kind of talking off air about how things are listening and how are we being marketed to now, what's actually going on. What kind of revolutionary changes do you see already in effect and in place, or are we at just the 
tip of the iceberg is there's so much more coming our way. Well, it's both of those, but I love the fact that you said already, because that's one of the things I stress in the book is that much of this is already taking place. Technology is changing us. It's changing who we are and how we think and what we buy and what we do. And I think that's a very important thing for all of us to be having a conversation around It's What is that change? What's the technology that's changing us and where is it taking us? Well, with the technology that currently exists, how invasive is it? I mean, you know, we were just talking about the fact that our smartphones are listening. And, you know, I was talking by the fire with my dad last night about coins and currency. And then this morning as I'm flipping through my social media, I'm seeing ads for collectible coins. Um, You know, it it seems interesting to me that (laughs) I'm kind of worried about what we talk about now, especially in my household. We talk a lot of true crime. I'm a little worried about (laughs) are they going to start showing me tarps and rope or what? Uh, But what do we know about the way marketing is is currently taking place? And, and, um, you know, what is the next evolutionary procedure? Yeah, so you're right to be worried. Your, Your cell phone is a microphone that is plugged into the Internet. And when you start to think about it that way, it's, it may change the way you treat it. Uh, we gave my daughter an Alexa, and uh, later in the evening she had forgotten it was there, and I reminded her by saying, remember, Kate, Alexa is listening. And at that moment, Alexa perked up and said, go ahead, I'm listening. My daughter mm-hmm. stood up, walked across the room, and unplugged it. <laughs> How old is your daughter? Uh, uh, she's 22. Oh, but, because know, my point- sister... The- has a daughter who loves her Alexa. She's three, though. All she ever does is talk to Alexa, saying, Alexa, play. She'll make up some song. <laughs> Usually it's a real song, but she is not bothered by it at all, and I have a feeling she's never going to be bothered by it because it's what she grew up with. Right. It's just the new It's how it is. Expectation. The, new, yeah. the new norm. Well, and you just said something that I actually wrote about in the book, and that is that um, you know my neighbor invited me over for uh, cocktails on my back patio, and I went over and their, their four-year-old son came and approached me and tugged on my sleeve and was trying to, you know, get me to go do something. And I was worried I was getting lured into a, you know, a game of Candyland or something. But I, <laughs> I went, and he had Alexa sitting on the counter, and he said, Alexa, play Star Wars. And, you know, Alexa responded, John Williams, the theme from Star Wars 1977, done, you know, the theme from Star Wars. And his mom came in the kitchen and was, like, watching this interaction adoringly, and he put Alexa through her paces a few times. And then he said the most remarkable thing. He leaned toward the device and he said, Alexa, I love you. And it was at that moment, I was actually writing the book at the time, it was at that moment where I realized that we are empathetically relating to our devices, that we're actually experiencing emotional relationships. And that opens us up. That makes us vulnerable. It makes us vulnerable to persuasion and marketing messages yeah. at a level that's deeper and different than what has preceded it. And that, and that's, uh, the BBC did a segment uh, a year or so ago on this, this very thing, whereas if there's a, a robot or something that will interact with you, that it, it, that interaction creates hesitancy of turning it off. Even though you want to turn it off, yep. there's a hesitancy. It's talking to me. I don't want to kill it. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So there's, there's so in, there's... in the experiment you're referring to, the robot actually says, "Please don't turn me off. I'm scared of the dark." And the, and of course, the participants in the study refused to turn it off because they they empathetically related to a device that could be scared of the dark. Of course, the computer wasn't scared of the dark, but we are tricking ourselves into relating to our devices as if they're experiencing 
those same kinds of emotions. It's interesting that we project onto that machine. We uh, personify it. it well, well, it's the first time yeah. in history that something can say something without having any feelings whatsoever. Humanity well, just... I don't know about that. Did well, you hear the story about Alexa this last week? Uh, there was a 29-year-old Echo owner who received an unexpected response from his Echo device. According to Michael Slade, he asked Echo to play his playlist and got the following response. Sure, here's your playlist, shithead, on Amazon Music. Sorry, something went wrong. <laughs> this is definitely not the first time Alexa has given an unexpected reply. Michael was shocked to hear the reply, and he contacted Amazon Customer Service, who in turn was shocked just as well. He doesn't have, I guess there's a swearing app you can add to make Alexa talk filthy to you. Of course. But he had, um, he said he hadn't used the customized or changed settings. They were able to verify that. Amazon has taken up the issue and asked Michael to provide all the Alexa logs for further investigation. So he had uh, canceled um, his one of his deals on Alexa, and as soon as he'd done that, it starts cursing at him. Oh, my God. <laughs> hmm. is, is, uh, is there an adult app as well? You'll have to look into that on your own time, Basham. <laughs> well, it's just bizarre. I ask it, I'm certain there is because it's just a bizarre. I'm sure just, you can make Alexa say anything you want. Yeah. Do you? Uh, we, we've reached a point where we are customizing information and right. personalizing it down to the individual level. And I learned this, you know, 20 years ago in the advertising industry, that we could deliver instead of broadcasting to everybody at the same time, we could deliver messages one at a time to one person right. based on their behaviors. And we got to know people. We started to develop computer systems that really got to know your personality, that got to know the websites that you visited and even the locations you visit on in the real world, in the physical world, and started to make assumptions about those audiences, about those individuals. Well, now 20 years later, we're using that technology to now talk to you, to actually speak to you using natural language. And that's really revolutionary because people relate to natural speech because it's human-like and the more human-like the speech the more empathetic we become the more vulnerable and open we are emotionally and that gives marketers a powerful tool to persuade us well william there's i've read an article and doing my other radio show i get into a lot of the weird conspiracies and you know everybody was talking about the fact that the they believe that a lot of these technologies have become the thought police. And it sounds like what you just described may actually back that up, that it's watching, it's learning, it's constantly yeah. stroking on what you want, what you do. So I've had people say, Dave, I was thinking the other day of a Caribbean cruise. I hadn't spoken to anybody about it. I hadn't researched anything about it. I hadn't done this. I hadn't done that. All of a sudden, I'm getting an onslaught. I think these things are becoming predictive. And... And I start talking to people, and something that you may or may not have noticed that you may have um, heard an ad and gone, yeah. oh, that sounds interesting, and and the smart device picked up on that. Or it, it's looking for these subtle deals, and it's predictively deciding. You, you know, on your chats lately, you've been talking about 80s music, and you've been talking about this. Let's show you an ad for, bam, is that predictive ability already in play in this, in this type of uh, software? That'd be wham. Yeah, I would say we're beyond predictive and we're now into prescriptive, which means not only are we predicting future outcomes, but we're actually shaping future outcomes. We're intentionally creating the future outcomes that we want using persuasive technology. I've actually given this technology a name, and I'd like to you know, share that. 
because I think we need words in order to think about complex subjects. So I, I looked at you know technology that operates on us psychologically, and I asked, what word would we use to describe technology that operates on us psychologically? And I said, well, that's psychological technology. And then I contracted that into psychotechnology. And so in the book, I talk a lot about psychotechnology as being the confluence of persuasive, personalized information that learns how to change your behaviors by relating with you empathetically using speech. So we talk to these devices. Now, today we're talking to machines and asking directions to the nearest Thai food restaurant. Uh, but tomorrow we're going to be asking more sophisticated questions. We're going to be asking, what should I study in college? Or what kind of career should I pursue? Who should I date? And at the point we're asking those questions, we have to be aware that the voices that are answering us have a reason for their answers. They have objectives, they have interests, and we have to become aware of those hidden influences in our lives so that we're not as vulnerable. And I've called that the invisible brand, which is the name of the book, because I really look at it as this invisible or hidden force that's operating already in our lives to change the way we think, what we buy. You mentioned you know, taking a cruise or a vacation planting the idea, but then following through prescriptively to ensure that you actually do take that vacation. Um, that's different than just predicting that you're going to take a vacation. So we're beyond prediction and we're into prescription. Well, uh, with regards to big data, is, is, it, is it true that if big, if, if, if big data can map three or four or five data points for an individual, so uh, uh, the you know, a person goes out and they uh, and they go to Target and they buy a gallon of milk. Then they go uh, fill up their car with gas. Then they text. Uh, uh, they do a text uh, at uh, midday, and then they uh, they drive home. And their GPS is a, is at their at their home. Not that they know what their home is, but they know that that people person sleeps at that spot. At some point, they can say, "Hey, that was Sally Miller that was out there uh, doing all these things. This is what she just did." Can be that individually prescribed, or is it, or is it still a little bit diffuse or fuzzy for people for the for big data? No, unfortunately, it's that prescript. I mean, it's that precise. Um, we have reached a point where we can identify individuals, but one of the questions that comes up frequently is, do we need to? If we know the identity of your device, we don't necessarily need to know your personal identity. We just know what that device does, and we, and, and so we can make a lot of our assumptions about you, and we can change a lot about your behavior simply by knowing your device ID. We can watch your device ID enter a grocery store. We can watch it move from aisle to aisle. We know what aisle you were standing in. We know what you bought when you went to the cash register because we compare the cash register transaction to your device ID using Bluetooth technology. I mean, we're, we're no longer needing your name and, and your you know personal details. All we need is your device ID to know a huge amount about you. We know where you've been. We know what you bought. We know what you've looked at online. And that tells us a huge amount about you merely because we know your device. I'm immediately going to go out and buy a copper envelope for my uh, for my phone. Put it in the <laughs> Faraday cage, and carry. I, I have a sale on aluminum foil hats on my site too. If you need one, no, of those no, to don't keep need, the thought no, projections no, out. Just well, get a flip phone. Yeah, well, even those with the even. big buttons, the jitterbug. There you go. <laughs> 
That's uh, that's kind of terrifying, William. Actually, to, how does it feel to know and be a part of that industry? Yeah, it, it is terrifying, but at the same time, there's so much promise and there's so much opportunity. We trade convenience regularly for you know personal information. If I'm if I'm dropping my dog off, uh, you know, I'm going on vacation. The guy that owns the, the the vet that I'm leaving my dog at has a right to certain information about me. They need to know my phone number. They need to where, know where I'm going when I'll be back. So we trade that kind of information. We give up elements of our privacy for conveniences and for business relationships. And all of us have experienced the, the convenience of, you know, ordering something online and having it delivered to our door. So there's a willingness in society for many of us to say, yes, I'm willing to trade certain conveniences for my personal information. Where it gets spooky and creepy is when we feel like we're being spied on by our devices where we haven't given permission, where we haven't uh, you know, explicitly said, yes, I'm establishing this relationship and I'm willing to give you this information. So there's a balance to be struck between you know, the conveniences that we're getting in our lives you know, as a result of this technology and the idea that you know, there are certain walls and boundaries that we want to protect in our lives, you know, in our private lives. Are, are you able to stay really for another segment today? Or, or do you have to get going? Yeah. All right, hold no, tight. I'm, I'm William Ammerman, our guest, we'll be right back. We've got more to discuss. Uh, very strange points. We'll do that when we return. You're listening to The Family. It's Tom Bernard with North American Banking Company CEO and my buddy, Michael Bilski. Michael, let's say somebody has a plan to expand their business this year. How can North American Banking Company get that job done? At North American Banking Company, we'll take time to understand the customer's needs and wants and their plans for the future. Once we have a good understanding of that, we'll try to solve their financing dilemma. We won't take a cookie cutter approach to any financing situation. Wonderful. So if I need cash to expand my podcast, you got a plan for me too? No. <laughs> God, thank you. I see where this is going. Well, we love working with you. We can help any business, including a podcast that's already very successful. Who's better than you? That's what I want to know. You I still are. never liked you, though. You are. No, I never. Don't try to make up. I don't. <laughs> Why not bank with my banker, North American Banking Company, a better banking experience, member FDIC, and an equal housing lender? Tom Bernard here for Whiting Clinic LASIK and Cataract. There's no better time than now to ditch your contacts and pitch your glasses. Whiting Clinic is the place I trusted to do this for me, and it's not just me. There's a reason Whiting Clinic is the number one LASIK practice in the United States. Dr. Whiting's unsurpassed experience, the most advanced Contura laser technology, and lifetime coverage are all backed by Whiting Clinic's best price guarantee. Being the experts they are, they wanted to make sure you have the very best for your eyes, just like I did. Call now for Whiting Clinic's $500 off LASIK savings. If you're like me, not a big fan of glasses and contact lenses, then it's time you found out if you're a candidate for LASIK. And Whiting Clinic is definitely the place to go. Call 855-554-2020 today or visit whitingclinic.com to set up your free LASIK consultation. Remember to tell them that I sent you and save $500 on your LASIK. Offer good for a limited time. Call Whiting Clinic for details. Good for both eyes only. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Welcome back to the family. Tom Bernard will be back with you tomorrow. I'm Dave Schrader. William Ammerman, our guest. 
promoting his book, The Invisible Brand, Marketing in the Age of Automation, Big Data, and Machine Learning. And obviously this, this right here is how Terminators come to life. <laughs> William, giving them too damn much information. We had a lot of uh, discussion popping up during the break. Now everybody's got their noses in their uh, their cell phones. But what, go back into the points. Bring them up to William. What's your thoughts were there, uh, well, Ralph? The, well, Tom Bernard, uh, his uh, namesake podcast, now with the uh, brand of the family. And he was, uh, I, I was sitting here, and he was. we were on the air, and he mentioned a product just as part of discussion uh, at the table. And within seconds ads on the computer he was looking at started to come up for that product Sounds about uh, right. just to just way too scary that's just way too scary you know and it wasn't a glitch in the matrix don't give me that william <laughs> <laughs> william's already on our side he's already the one telling us i know he's whistleblowing already or maybe william's a glitch in the matrix is this uh you know is this good overall that that we have technology and AI that is able to predict these things, or is that where it, inherently the danger starts to to be? What else can it influence us to do? Obviously, with the Russian interference in the elections and some of these other things we're seeing, and the the tests that uh, Facebook admitted to doing a few years ago in manipulating how we receive our information and how it could set us off onto a good day or a bad day, depending on what filter it allowed us to see. I can see, obviously, there's a dark side to all of this, but what is the, the upside? Well, if you're a marketer, the upside is uh, more effective marketing and selling products and services to people who need them uh, just in time. So the, the challenge for marketers is to not cross the creepy line. The creepy line is that point where the consumer starts to feel manipulated, starts to feel as though their privacy has been invaded and that they're being uh, watched or surveilled. And so this kind of surveillance capitalism, I've heard it referred to, uh, you know, the surveillance capitalism, capitalism that is pervading kind of the marketing industry is something that consumers are starting to look for ways to push back on and to say, no, there should be a wall of separation here. I really am not comfortable, uh, you know, with, uh, with crossing this creepy line. But these businesses, you know, particularly the, the Facebooks of the world that have massive amounts of data, are finding ways to mine and exploit that data every day that would shock all of us. Um, there was a, a famous story a few years ago where, uh, you know, Target set out to try to figure out how are we going to figure out when a woman is pregnant because she changes a lot of her buying behaviors during pregnancy and then she'll set those buying behaviors in place and she'll buy the same product for 20 years. This is a huge opportunity. And they actually got good at it. But the weird thing was that when they started marketing directly to pregnant women, they started to get some pushback. And, and one famous story from that was that a father opened the mail to his daughter, and it was Target marketing pregnancy products to his daughter, who was only 16 at the time. And he was very incensed while he was doing this. And it turned out that she, in fact, was preg pregnant, and he didn't know about it. And that, that created kind of in Target's mind an opportunity to say, wait a minute, maybe we don't want to be so obvious about this. Maybe we want to bury the pregnancy ads among the ads for charcoal grills and, and lawnmowers um, so that we're not quite as obvious. And so that's what's happened. There's this, bit, there's this obfuscation of the targeting technology so that people don't feel that they're being watched and surveilled. So <laughs> instead of brands overtly trying to put their brand in front of people now they're trying to covertly market to you so that you don't realize that you're being marketed based on your 
personal data and your personal information. And I think that's a unique change that we're going through is that corporations feel the need to actually hide their marketing tactics so that consumers aren't offended by it. It's yeah, go ahead, Ralph. Can can we can now can we as consumers obfuscate our uh, availability? <laughs> short, short, short of putting your like short of putting your phone in a uh, copper a copper uh, pouch or a copper uh, phone case where you, does it doesn't work anymore. What what can you do or should you do? I mean, even even if you turn your phone off, I've been told that it tracks you. Well, sure. So, you know, you're now driving around in a car, and that car has, you know, GPS connections, and its location can be tracked. Your phone can be tracked. You're having conversations with your television, which means the TV that's hanging on your wall has a microphone in it, which is connected to the Internet. If you say, Alexa, Alexa wakes up because she's listening. And, you know, what people have to understand is that she was always listening. Um, you know, <laughs> the fact that she wakes up, quote unquote, is the fact that she starts interacting with you. Uh, but, you know, the device is on. And, uh, and, you know, so when we as consumers start to allow this technology into our lives, we are giving up a certain level of privacy. We are intentionally inviting this invasion of privacy into our lives. And so you're faced with a difficult choice. Do I want to stop driving cars? Do I want to stop using cell phones? Do I want to stop watching television? Or am I willing to allow this technology into my life? And so a lot of people are looking for political solutions. They're looking for legislation. They're looking for ways to segment data and say some data is permissible to be had and some data is not permissible to be had and trying to wall off and create, you know, kind of new uh, boundaries between ourselves and, uh, you know, kind of the marketers is a challenge. Um, you know, there's a fine line and people realize that that gray area, you know, between me and, you know, the, the dog, you know, the, the pet store where I'm leaving my dog, we have common data. You know, we, he knows that I'm dropping my dog off. He knows what kind of dog I own. He knows my telephone number, where I'm going to be by necessity because it involves his business. And so that gray area where you have two entities who need to simultaneously own the same data. Some of it's my data, some of it's his data, some of it is our data. And when we get into this notion of our data, collectively owning data, some of it's about me, some of it's about your business, that's where the the rub is. That's where it gets very difficult to start distinguishing who should be allowed to own this information, Um, particularly in business relationships where you're doing business with someone. Uh, in, interesting on in, on this this past uh, season on the Grand Tour. That's the uh, Jeremy Clark Clarkson uh, uh, TV show that's on is it Amazon uh, that's on. And they did a segment where they drove around in China. And one of the things that they they noted more than once was as you're driving down the freeway, every so many miles, there's a camera that takes a picture of everybody's in the car. And they have incredible facial recognition in China, where they pretty much track everybody, everywhere, personally, all the time. Mm-hmm. And they just—it's just completely uh, obvious to all the people. And people have accepted they're just based on their system. But in essence, that's what's happening here. We just don't hear about it. I mean, is it? I- so China is China is actively developing a system that is a social credit yep. system, much yep. like you might see right. on an episode of Black Mirror where you're actually being given credits 
or positive pro-China behaviors. And if you do something that might be perceived as an anti-social behavior, you are debited credits or you're reduced in your credits or your score. And that score is used to, to qualify for things like you know, transportation and housing. And so when you start to look at a government with the power to give you those benefits through social media scoring, you're also looking at a government that has the power to take those things away from you. So now your social credit score becomes your means for getting housing and transportation. What happens when you speak out or protest against the government? Well, of course, your social credit score goes down. So this becomes a currency that you can trade for goods, but which can also be taken away from you very easily without you know, kind of due process. And I think that's a terrifying prospect, and right. one that you know exists and is being developed in China, but has the potential to exist more broadly in our own lives. And I think we all need to be aware of that and awake to the dangers and the you know the potential that that you know is something ominous lurking in our future. Uh, Dave, hand me that hand me that tin foil, uh, <laughs> the aluminum foil. I got to do hat. You know, but if but if you look at it. Uh, big data in America or in the Western world, say, that's or America in particular, I, that big data could then say, hey, well, you know, that credit score of yours, you know, you know, used to be pretty good, but yeah, geez, you know, you just this happened and this happened. Maybe you should have a couple points taken off the credit score, uh, and then and then the credit uh, the people that run the credit scores, yeah, well, that's nice because we wanted that big data information so that we could be more effective in that where you get this uh, symbiotic relationship. Or uh, suppose, uh, suppose uh, you so, know. So you're saying Alexa just heard that I got a yeah, sixth suppose cat, Microsoft says and now they, it's they, knocked on my credit score because uh, it realizes I'm nuts? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because Microsoft, or maybe Microsoft, they want to have, they want to get a conservative uh, person elected to office, and they, they push this sort of conservative agenda out to everybody, everybody so that people vote for the conservative. And once the conservative's in there, then they say, well, you know, you know, we helped you get in here. You know, maybe you could yeah. help us do some of these other things, and maybe you could do this and this and As this. As if for that us. doesn't already happen. That, but it's it's not too far fetched that uh, there are there are systems in place in America, America, Is it America, <laughs> America. Could you, could you be that, any more American? That could this could happen easily happen. And that credit, you're right. That that credit uh, system. That's, uh, that's what's scary. Nice. That's funny, William, because there's, uh, you know, there was, I don't know if you're old enough to remember Father Guido Sarducci, the comedian. He sure. did he did this whole dissertation about um, how he had this dream that he died and went to heaven and turned out that every day we're paid like $30. <laughs> every day. And then God deducts from that $30. So if you, uh, you know... Um, if you get through the day without sinning, you get that money. And he goes, and everything's got a price, like murder. Well, that's a big one, so that's going to cost you a thousand bucks. So you got to work it off for a long time. And then there's little ones like masturbation's only fifteen cents. And then at the end of the deal, they go through the books, and as long as you're on the positive side, you get into heaven. And he goes, and then he goes, and at the end of the dream, I found out I was fifteen cents short. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, but it sounds like that's kind of this uh, this concept is that it's it's banking you crediting you for your actions as long as you're playing the game the way they want to we are in a living matrix then yeah or or, or they could just offer suppose uh, you have a good score amongst the big data and they said well maybe you get 15 percent off that amazon uh, that amazon product but someone else over here oh they didn't vote right they get five percent off that amazon product 
I mean, it is it is it is just a flu, very it lets fluid them punish kind of behavior that shouldn't be punished. I guess is the problem. Like if it was like some all-knowing benevolent creature like God doing it, then it would make sense. But that doesn't exist, so it can't really be done. Yeah, you know, I listen. You know, if I listen to only liberal uh, stations and I seek out liberal sites and liberal information, uh, maybe they want to punish me. Maybe they want they don't want to that, that activity. They want me to you know, they give me don't give me the same credit they give somebody who uh, only goes out to Breitbart and only goes out to Fox News and all that sort of stuff. What's it like to live in that paranoid head of yours? Right. That's <laughs> well, what I want to know. Well, the, well, but but it's but this you know it's 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 a real thing that people you, you know, I think that Williams bringing to the consciousness or do making an effort to bring to consciousness that this is a real thing. Right. Understand it, and if something if something needs to be done, and, and the simplest thing. Like I've said, you put it in a you put it in the foil pouch, or legislation. Would legislation work? And then how do you police that sort of thing? I mean, this stuff is buried deep, buried deep. Well, William, you have, so a, you you have a minute and forty five seconds to give us your wrap up on that. But what? <laughs> how, how bad or good are we at this point? Yeah, you you mentioned religion, and the last chapter in the book is actually uh, the God algorithm, and that chapter really delves into kind of our needs and our religious impulses, uh, because I believe that our religious impulses also make us vulnerable. We have a desire to connect with each other and with the, the universe around us, and I think that's hackable. And, uh, and so when we even look at our religious impulses, we may be soon uh, finding ourselves being you know, empathetic and religiously persuaded by artificial intelligence. And so there, there's another backdoor. I would love to, you know, kind of share more of this information with uh, with your listeners. They can visit my website at wammerman.com. So it looks like Wammerman. It's my first initial, last name, William Ammerman. And um, visit the uh, site and learn more about the Invisible Brand, uh, which is the book that I've written that discusses marketing in the age of artificial intelligence. Uh, because this is affecting everyone already. Going back to your first comment, you know, we're already living in this age where we're affected by technology, and it's shaping and changing us every day. William Ammerman, the book, again, is called The Invisible Brand, Marketing in the Age of Automation, Big Data, and Machine Learning. Thank you so much, William. It's been uh, eye-opening for, for sure. Thanks so much. All right, stay tuned. When we come back, Harris Cattleman joins us. You can't fall off the floor and other lessons learned from a life in Hollywood. That's next here on The Family. What are the things you want to avoid when it comes time to sell your home? Hey, it's Tom with my realtor, Chris Lindahl. If you're like most people, it's things like open houses, staging, decluttering, repairs, maintenance, and all the people coming through your house. Hey, Tom, the Guaranteed Offer Program from Chris Lindahl Real Estate was created for people like you so that you can avoid the things that you don't like doing when it comes time to sell your home. We have been presenting offers for homes in most price ranges. Homeowners are loving our guaranteed offer program, especially how much money they are making on their home sale without the inconveniences. So this program is for all price ranges and conditions, including perfectly maintained homes? Most homes do qualify. To see if your home qualifies, go to chrislindahl.com and click Get Offer right now. Will you be the next homeowner to accept an offer from our guaranteed offer program? Find out now. If you qualify, you will get an offer in 48 hours or less, and the best part is you get to pick a closing date that is convenient for you and close in as little as three weeks. Go to chrislindahl.com right now to see if you qualify or call 763-401-SOLD. That is 763-401-SOLD. 
Hi, it's Tom. After achieving my goal of losing 92.5 pounds in less than five months, thanks to the Sheehy brothers and the amazing staff at Nutramost in Plymouth, I'd like to encourage you to let Nutramost help you shed those unwanted pounds, too. Besides eating fresh foods, another one of the reasons that the Nutramost weight loss plan works so well is the one-on-one coaching that you receive. We all know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. So, how long have you been trying to lose weight on your own without the help of a coach? When you have someone keeping you accountable, it makes achieving your goal so much easier. Make a commitment to your health and let Nutramost help you with your weight loss journey. I encourage you to schedule your immediate consultation or attend the Nutramost free dinner at 6.30 p.m. on Monday, June 24th at Jake's in Plymouth. Nutramost guarantees that you lose 20 pounds or more. Call now, 763-333-7337. That's life. We're back. This is The Family. Joining us now, Harris Cattleman, the former president and CEO of 20th Century Fox Television. He's experienced a long record of successes as a television studio head, a producer, and a talent agent. He is here talking to us about his book, You Can't Fall Off the Floor, and Other Lessons from a Life in Hollywood. Harris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us. So coming out and, and sharing some of these behind-the-scenes tales, what what inspired you to, to come forward with this at this point? Uh, you mean write the book? Yes. Okay. Well, <clears throat> every uh, holiday, like, you know, Christmas, or, or I'd have all my family over, my children and grandchildren. At the end of the dinner, they'd all sit around. They'd say, tell us stories. Did you really handle Marlon Brando? Did you really <laughs> handle Grace Kelly? Did you really run Fox Television? So I sat down. I said, I'm going to write a journal just for my children and grandchildren. So I started writing it at my computer, and a very, very close friend of mine named Bill Haber, who's one of the founders of Creative Artists Agency, which is the largest theatrical agency now in Los Angeles. I showed him the two chapters. This is really good. I think I could sell this. I said, oh, stop it. And he calls me. He says, I got good news. I sold the book. Now, that was the good news. The bad news was I had to write it. <laughs> and I enlisted my, my grandson, who's a uh, screenplay writer, uh, to come in and help me because what he would do is he'd ask me questions, you know, say, well, tell me about this or tell me about that. And it took me two years, but uh, we finished it and it got published and it's out there and uh, it's getting great success. It's uh, it's in the top uh, 20 now on Amazon of all new books on the entertainment business. So it just sort of, it, it left a legacy because, you know, someday when I go to join my mom and dad <clears throat> at Hillside Cemetery, at least the kids will have something to know what I did, you know, what their grandfather did, because I never really knew what my grandfather did. And it's, it's sort of leaving something for the family. Well, and, and certainly having such a connection to the entertainment industry, it, it's really great to be able to see and share how you watch certain things open up and, and connect and how these these pieces uh, all fit together. And kind of going through the bio here, it says that 
The book goes beyond the story of, of a life in Hollywood. It's the story of crucial developments, how motion picture film libraries were open for television licensing, how The Simpsons was birthed, and much, much more. It's also a collection of vital life lessons for anyone aspiring to establish a career in Hollywood. But being a Simpsons nerd myself, I've I got to just ask you about that. I always wondered how this little snippet from the Tracy Ullman show had life breathed into it to, to create a 30-year-long-run cartoon and one of the most popular and famous uh, TV shows in history. Well, <clears throat> um, Jim Brooks, who was, you know, developed all the hot shows at MTM, like the Mary Tyler Moore show and, and Cheers, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, uh, came to Fox. He just produced the hit movie Terms of Endearment, which won three Academy Awards. <clears throat> and he said to me, I signed up for Fox to do movies. I'm finished with television. He says, you got it? And Jim comes to the South. He says, I've created Southern United. He said, Harris, you got it? I said, yeah, Jim, I got it. And one thing led to another. And uh, we convinced him to develop the Tracy Ullman show, which was uh, Tracy Ullman. And it was a 30-minute variety show on Fox Broadcasting. Remember, this was before FBC was really a, a powerhouse uh a broadcasting uh, network, and that uh, was Tracy Ullman, and then Jim, not me, Jim Brooks enlisted Matt Graney, who had the uh, Simpsons as a one-minute segment of the Tracy Ullman show, and uh, it was so creative at that time, and uh, Jim and Matt came to me, I was president of Fox Television, and Tracy Ullman show was on Fox, produced by Fox Television, and said, we think Simpsons could be a half-hour show. So we took seven one-minute episodes. I mean, we took seven episodes and took the one-minute Simpsons episode and put it together, and we tested it. And for your listeners, testing is, is a facility in, in uh, Los Angeles. You take uh, the show, and you invite people in off the street, and they have dials, whether they like it, they don't like it, and they turn the dial. Well, the show scored a 98. Now, MASH scored a 95. Wow. I mean, we didn't believe the wow. testing. So we then took it to CBS to test their shows in Las Vegas. And I think it's a better uh, facility because they don't take people from Los Angeles. They take people from all over the United States. And it tested there, tested a 98. So I took the show, and uh, we had to do a pilot. We'd have to do the pilot in South Korea because animation uh, creators in Los Angeles made way too much money for us to do a 30-minute animated show. That's why Walt Disney was the only company who really did animated uh, movies. And uh, I then had to go to uh, Rupert Murdoch and Barry Diller, who were the, Barry was the CEO of Fox. Rupert Murdoch was the owner of News Corp, which owned Fox. And I told them about it, and they said, what's it going to cost? I said, a million dollars an episode, and you have to commit to 13 episodes. Why 13? It takes between 10 and 12 weeks to do each episode of animation. So if we did one show and it was a hit, we wouldn't be able to deliver the second show. So I said, you have to commit for 13 episodes. And I remember Rupert looked at me, and he said to me, he said, you want us to commit $13 million for an animation show? I said, yep. <laughs> and Barry Diller said, it better work, Harris. 
I said, hey, Barry, if it doesn't work, you can fire me. And Barry said, no, I'll keep you here and torture you. <laughs> and, the rest of, and the rest is history. What an amazing piece. Did you have any concept at that time just how big this thing would become and the longevity of it? Did you see this as like a good, cute little three- to five-year project? You know, honestly, no, I didn't. I mean, uh, you know, if I if I could see that far in the future, I'd just be playing the stock market, and I'd be like Warren Buffett. I, 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 I thought it would be successful, but I never imagined the success it would become. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, that and, and just the, the staying power, the, you know, how, how iconic the program has become. Well, you, know, you know, through Barry Diller's genius, not mine, Barry was the one who said, let's move it to Thursday night at 8 o'clock against a show called The Cosby Show, which is the number one rated show on television. And I was shaking in my boots, to be honest with you, and so was Jim Brooks, because here we're going to take our nice little animated show and go against that juggernaut NBC show called The Cosby Show. And we were on, we were on Fox, you know, which did not have uh, the strength that NBC had. Well, we didn't knock off the Cosby show. We cut the ratings in half, and we cemented our position in television, and then we were moved to Sunday night. So, and there again, that was Barry Diller's genius, not mine. All right, one of the other stories, I know time is fleeting here, but I love the way it starts off. From watching his colleague get shot in the testicles by a jealous producer to running Hollywood's most successful television studio. I, what? <laughs> <laughs> well, MCA, yes. which is the talent agency where I started, was in Beverly Hills on Crescent Drive in Santa Monica Boulevard, for your listeners who are familiar with Beverly Hills. And interestingly enough, our parking lot was across the street from the agency, which is now the Beverly Hills Police Department. And I came out. I'd just been made an agent. It was like 7 o'clock. I'm going to meet. I don't remember who it was somebody to sign up hopefully as a client as i'm walking in the parking lot i hear bang bang and i look up and i see a person who i recognize immediately as a client of ours named joan bennett and she jumped in her car and i saw a man with a 38 revolver and i ducked down because i figured i don't know who he is but he's shooting somebody and i sure don't want it to be in the first right. two months since i've been made an agent <laughs> and he shot one of the heads of the MCA agency named Jennings Lang, one in the spy and one in the testicle. And uh, he took the gun, put it in his pocket, got in his car and drove away. Jennings was lying there bleeding. And I went over to Jennings and I said, what happened? He said, he, says, he shot me, he shot me. And now I'm thinking, here I am, I'm 20 years old. I've just been made an agent. What am I going to do? <clears throat> I know that I got to get him out of there. The famous hospital in Los Angeles called Cedar Sinai. I know I can't take him to Cedar Sinai because there's paparazzi, there's everything. So I remember my uncle, who was a surgeon, was the chief of surgery at a hospital called Midway Hospital, which was a very fine hospital, but I knew it wasn't the Hollywood Hospital. Right. So I put Jennings in my car, took him to Midway. My uncle, bear in mind, this before cell phones. He happened to be there doing the surgery. So I 
told my uncle what happened. My uncle put him in the maternity ward so nobody could find him and operated <laughs> on him, Jennings Lang. And I called Lou Wasserman, who was the president of my boss, and informed him. And makes a long story short, uh, the head of MCA who owned MCA was Joel Stein. He wanted to fire Jennings Lang, but Wasserman, knowing that he handled some of our most important clients, said, let's cut him some slack. We say cut him some slack. My uncle did the surgery. He must have been really a great surgeon because Jennings Lang went on to marry a lady named Monica Lewis, who was the original Chiquita Banana in the commercial. They oh, had sure. two very healthy sons, so my uncle must have done something right. Wow. What, what an amazing life. And just to watch all of these uh, kind of stories unfold and be a part of that history. Um, we've only got about three, three and a half minutes left, but what's, what's another one of your favorite stories that, you know, I'm sure as you're writing the book, things are coming back to you. What was one of the surprise aha moments you had again from all of these memories? I'll try to hear what, what is what? Well, just as you were writing the book, I'm sure you encountered those memories that had been distant and all of a sudden you were reminded of them. What was one of your favorite memories that you recovered in writing this book? Well, you know, there were a lot of memories that, you know, just to tell you how the book got written, you know, as I said, I wrote it for a journal for my grandchildren and my friend Bill Haber, the uh, creator, the owner, uh, partner of CIA, sold it. And I enlisted my grandson, uh, Nicholas Cattleman, who just graduated from the University of Washington and had sold a script. And I said, look, come and work with me. And it was interesting because all my life, my three children who are all very successful, one's a very successful producer director, another one's a big entertainment lawyer, and my daughter is a, is a great mother. And I got to work with my grandson. And I ignored my children when they were growing up because I was trying to, I was growing up because we had them, my wife, first wife and I had them when we were very young. And now I was able to spend time with my grandson. And we, you know, it took me two years to finish this book. And it, it sort of opened my eyes. It's made me closer to my other grandchildren. I mean, I'm fortunate not to have seven grandchildren. And <clears throat> I spent a lot more time with them than I ever spent with my children because I learned a lesson. It's more important to spend time with your family and building your career. But at that time, all I had in mind was to build my career because, you know, I, I didn't come from a family that's in the entertainment business. I came from a family with a father with a parking lot uh, manager and a mother with a legal secretary. Well, Harris Cattleman, the book is called You Can't Fall Off the Floor and Other Lessons from a Life in Hollywood Destined to Become a Classic Account of the Business Side of Entertainment. This book shares what really happened in the early careers of Hollywood stars and the development of iconic programs. Harris, thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you so much for having me. You, you had a very close friend of mine on your show. He told me about you, Al Michael. Oh, right. Yeah, I've been uh, a good friend of uh, Tom's on the show for quite a while. So thank you for uh, popping in and sharing some of these insights. It's amazing. I hope the book does well. I'm looking forward to read it myself. That's it for today, kids. Uh, Tom will be back in-house tomorrow with the show. He'll be uh, back for the rest of the week. And it's been a pleasure sitting in with you again. Check out uh, Midnight in the Desert, Monday through Friday, for the best in strange and anomalous talk radio. You can find info at midnightinthedesert.com. I'm also on the weekends at Beyond the Darkness. And uh, for all the radio shows I'm a part of, just go check out darknessradio.com. And uh, tomorrow I'll get some great guests lined up as well. I guess you're going to be taking a look at some true crime stories. Yes. Yep.
tomorrow on the program. So for those of you that are fans of true crime, make sure you check that out and uh, tune in. We'll be back again tomorrow. Tom Bernard at the helm right here on The Family. Thank you.